0: Welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. So somehow in the first service, I preached for like 45 minutes. So I went in between services and I uh, took out two sentences for y'all. <laughs> You're welcome. I want to start off by uh, stating a very profound theological truth, and that is that uh, sleeping is one of God's greatest blessings to us. Amen? I, it's like the 930 service, that was the most robust response I've ever received from them in a Presbyterian Amen. church. So uh, in fact, after I preach on Sundays, uh, it is basically a necessity for me that I have to go home and take a little Sunday afternoon siesta. And um, I will admit, and Lalia will concur, that that is a luxury at this point in our lives with two little ones. But sleeping is this—it's an interesting thing because we all need it, but some need more of it than others. I know Ivor needs a lot of it, right Ivor? Yeah, that's right. And then some find it easy to achieve, but then others of you wrestle through the night. You find sleep to be elusive. And some uh, rest extremely, Peacefully, And then if you have little ones, some just toss and turn all through the night, or a spouse or something like that, just kicking through the night. And this morning, we're going to look at two texts about men who are sleeping. The first man is Jonah, and the second is Jesus. And it really is amazing how similar these two narratives are. But these men's reasons for sleeping could not be more different. So what I'm going to have you do is open up to Jonah 1, and then maybe uh, have Luke 8 ready. But while you're turning there, uh, in Jonah 1 first, I'll pray for us. Lord, we ask that you would speak like only you can speak. pray that you would tune our ears to hear your voice ever so clearly. We ask that you would turn our hearts to you so that we might experience the fullness of all that you have for us. May the meditations of my heart and the words from my mouth be pleasing and acceptable to you. Jesus, be glorified and magnified in this place. Amen. Amen. what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So at this point in the story, we know that Jonah is fleeing from the presence of God. He's chosen to disobey the command of God and has refused his mission. Instead, Jonah boards a ship in hopes of avoiding the task set before him. God has taken a notice of Jonah's disobedience and has sent a violent storm. And Pastor Tim did an amazing job last week of elaborating on the storms of life and how God can use them to get our attention and ultimately to transform us. Well, the storm that was sent upon that ship on its way to Tarshish was definitely a storm that got everyone's attention. It just took Jonah a little bit longer than the rest of the crew The storm that the ship encountered was not a typical one. It was so treacherous, in fact, that seasoned mariners were terrified. I don't know if you guys know, do you know any seasoned sailors? I would not label them as people who get scared very easily, right? Have you ever watched Deadliest Catch? Come on. I mean, like, those guys relish the opportunity to be in the most extreme situations, And so the longer you've stayed on the water, the more seasoned you've become, the more perilous situations you've been in. And so these guys have surely experienced their fair share of dangerous dilemmas on the water. But this particular storm has them taking two very distinct drastic measures. So the first drastic measure is that they call out to their gods. As the saying goes, there's no atheists in foxholes. We do not know exactly how religious these men were, but we do know that they're afraid and that they're crying out to gods in a very explicit way. And oftentimes, such cries for help from God come due to the severity of the situation. Have you ever noticed this? When someone really finds like their life being threatened, then they kind of, call upon a spiritual force or, or the God that they serve. Second, they took the radical step of throwing their cargo and provisions overboard in hopes that the lightened ship would better navigate the storm. I don't know anything about sailing, but that just doesn't seem right. Like it doesn't, You wouldn't do that right off the bat. Like, oh, it's getting windy. Throw the stuff overboard. Like It has to be a pretty crazy situation for them to do that. Um, So we know, we could just gather from the information that this is a crazy storm. You can picture kind of the waves raging all around them. And I do in fact do that because I have a fascination with waves. Before I had kids and an extra 40 pounds on my body, I used to surf pretty often. Now it's just like I reminisce back to those days when my board could float me. But (laughs) uh, even before then, as a kid growing up, I loved studying waves. I studied oceanography in middle school. Um, I have all sorts of information that I haven't been able to apply in life yet because of it. But um, I had an extra fascination with these things called tsunamis. And so, uh, I've, you guys ever gone down like the YouTube trail where you start watching YouTube videos and repopulate? So I've been down the trail for the uh, 2004 um, Indian Ocean tsunami quite a few times. And there's this one harrowing video that I'll always remember is um, all of the tourists, when they see the water drastically recede quickly, all the tourists come out onto the beach and they start walking on the land that was once covered by water. Disclaimer, if that happens here, don't, don't do that, okay? Just so everyone knows. And then you can start hearing the locals screaming because you see this wall of white on the horizon. It's terrifying. And the locals are screaming for the the tourists to run for their lives. And many of them do. But there's this one guy in the video who just sits, stops, and just accepts his fate. And the first wave just takes him out. It's this, it just, it's a harrowing, sobering situation. And (laughs) this is kind of what's going on in this story. You've got a bunch of panicking people on the boat and there's one guy, the prophet of Israel, who's just sleeping, just letting it happen, letting it go by, how? How could someone sleep through that? Perhaps he is like me or other dads who have this uncanny ability to sleep through things like crying babies and fighting children and things like that, much the chagrin of many women. So there is this possibility, right? We can't discount the possibility that Jonah perhaps is just sleeping soundly, um, exhausted, and that's what's going on here. But what many theologians actually put forth is that Jonah is sleeping what they call the sleep of sorrow. The theory is that he was so distraught by his personal situation that he was using sleep as a way to escape his mental and spiritual anguish. I've been there. Maybe some of you have been there as well. You can sleep like a rock because you don't want to wake up and face your problems and the circumstances before you. I mean, Jonah knew full well that he had disobeyed God. And so sleep might have been for him seemingly the only time where he could for a moment, get away from his shame and from his guilt and from his depression. Although sometimes God can invade our sleep too. But the captain of the ship would not stand for this. All of the others on board were being proactive. They were trying to help. They were trying to save their own lives. They were trying to save the lives of the crew. So the captain rightly demanded that Jonah do likewise. He screamed, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish This is extremely ironic. The Israelite prophet has to be summoned to prayer by a pagan sailor. Very much the same kind of person that he was supposed to be going to reach is now telling him to pray to God. Jonah had rejected God's call to preach to Nineveh. He didn't want to talk to pagans about God or lead them toward faith, and now here he is being given a commandment to rise and call upon the Lord in front of a captive Gentile audience. And this command to arise was first given to Jonah in verse 2 by God. But now in verse 6, the captain is repeating that same command to arise. So let's try to count the ways in which God is trying to get Jonah's attention. First, God explicitly directly spoke to his prophet. Didn't work. He fled the the opposite direction. Second, he sent a storm. Didn't work. Jonah slept through most of it. Third, he uses a pagan sailor to wake him up. Does that work? I don't know. I'm not touching on that today. Uh, So... You'll have to stay tuned for the rest of the series, or if you want to, Jonah is a really short book, so you can read it this afternoon. But for, for today's particular purposes, I just want to point out the variety of ways that God is trying to communicate to his people. You and I are not unlike Jonah. Even at this very moment, the God of the universe is trying to get your attention, He wants to make you aware of his presence. He wants you to know that he is good and that he's in control of all things. And ultimately, he wants a deeper relationship with you. Right now, where you trust him more fully and you follow him more closely. This is how we flourish. And God has given us his word as the main way to speak to us direct us, and ultimately showcase the amazing way that he loves us. And God got my attention this week as I began studying these verses in Jonah because immediately they made me think of a comparable story in uh, the life of Jesus. And as I dug deeper, I was struck by how Jesus is actually the true and better Jonah. Jesus did what Jonah could not or would not do. So turn in chapter 8 of Luke. To verse 22. This is what you heard read by Genie. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, where's your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? So there's some obvious similarities between these two stories. You got boats, sleeping men, terrified sailors, waves, wind, and chaos. But the differences between these two stories is what I want to focus on this morning and there's four that I wanna draw out for you. First, in Luke's passage, Jesus is in control. In the story of Jonah, we find a man who is on the run. In his panic, he boards a ship filled with strangers, and he is simply a passenger, a stowaway, basically, along for the ride. Jesus, on the other hand, is the master. He's the captain, if you will. He's even the one who tells them, hey, let's get in the boat and go on the other side. Even Jesus' slumber is one that demonstrates his control over the situation. He's able to sleep soundly because he knows how it's going to end. Second, Jesus calmed the storm. See, we're told in Jonah that God sent the storm. In Luke's gospel, we don't get such information. Instead, the emphasis is on the stopping of the storm, okay? It's a really important comparison. So in Jonah's story, God sends the storm. In the story of Jesus, God calms the storm. Third, they cry out to Jesus. For me, this is such a distinct and important difference. The pagan sailors in Jonah's situation were grasping at cosmic straws. They were crying out to made up gods. Furthermore, Jonah did not cry out with them to the one true God. You know, he didn't even pray until he enters the belly of the fish. That wasn't until you get through the whole first chapter of Jonah before he actually turns and speaks to God. But the disciples on the other hand, they go directly to Christ. When they're in danger, they did what was appropriate They placed their hope in God's son. They did not hesitate. Their first reaction was to go to the Messiah. Fourth and finally, Jesus stayed the course. You have to give me some time to explain this one further by looking at some of the context in Luke's gospel. If you look at Luke 8, verses 26, 27, this is what happens when they get on the other side of this lake. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. So, Gina, J- Jonah had been instructed to go to the great city of Nineveh, and he was instructed to preach against their evil doings. Jonah chose a different path, he chose a course of his own making. But look at what Jesus did. He sailed directly to the Gentile country of the Gerasenes, and he face to face with a demon-possessed man. Evil in the flesh. Jesus sets a course and he goes towards it. And this is what the outcome is. Evil was overcome by good and a man's life was saved and transformed. So much so that Luke 8.39 says that the man went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Because of Jesus' steadfastness, a new country was exposed to the gospel. This is what Jonah was supposed to do. This is what he should have done but it was his fear and his lack of trust that ultimately got the better of it. For me, these four differences prove that Jesus is, in fact, the true and better Jonah. Amanda will expound even more upon this in her sermon in a couple of weeks. But for the rest of this sermon, I want to draw out some deeper theological significance from these texts by examining one word that appears in both of this morning's pat. Wow, passages. I gave away the word, kind of. The word is perish. The captain in Jonah and the disciples in Luke's gospel were all afraid that they might perish. In the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, verse six of Jonah uses the word apollome. In Luke 8.24, the disciples used a different tense of that same Greek verb. Apolomē means to kill lose or perish and some scholars will go even as far to translate it as to utterly destroy so in our first story the captain woke up the prophet and demanded that he cry out to god so that they might not perish what the captain's really doing is he's communicating that he and the others don't want to die right they don't want to die In Luke's gospels, the disciples frantically woke up Jesus by screaming, master, master, we are perishing. Likewise, these men don't want to die. But then Jesus said something that was extremely confusing to me. I don't know if it's the same for you. But he asks this pointed question of the disciples. Where is your faith? It seems to me that the disciples did what was good and natural, In fact, I highlighted it as like, look, at do what the disciples did. And then Jesus is like, no, don't do what they did because where is their faith? Why would Christ question their faith? And here's what I came up with by studying that word. A variation of it occurs 90 times in the New Testament. And I'm gonna highlight just a few of the occurrences because it helps just draw out where the Bible really places the meaning of this word. Apollome is the word. Luke, in Luke 15, Jesus tells three famous parables about things that are lost. So you've got a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. Well, lo and behold, the word for lost is Apollome. That's actually the word. Luke 15, 6 says, "'Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost.'" Luke 15, 9, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Luke fifteen twenty three and 24, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You see, these parables highlight the great joy that accompanies a lost or perishing thing that is found or saved. We're going to consider one more verse. You might have heard of it before. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Gave his son that we should not perish but have eternal life. This pivotal verse in scripture teaches us something profound about the word perishing. God's love for the world and Jesus's sacrifice for humanity are not so that our mortal bodies will be saved. Since the fall of humankind, God has initiated a plan for redemption that saves us from perishing eternally. That is what John 3.16 is all about. That is why I think Jesus questions the faith of the disciples during the storm. He notices that their concern is for their personal well-being and frankly, for their fear of dying. So Jesus is essentially saying to them, why would you ever worry about perishing when you are with me? Your earthly lives could end But you will not perish so long as I am with you. We are like the disciples. We worry about and fear the storms of life. And many of us fear death. But the Bible tells us of a different kind of rescue plan, one in which we no longer have to fear that we will be utterly destroyed. You see what I'm trying to do here by using the scriptures? We have this worldly, worldly view of what it means to perish. And this, this is hard and I don't, I've weighed whether I should even say it because I, but God, but God is far less concerned with our lives on earth. He wants to save us for life with him for all of eternity. He has the bigger picture in mind. That's what he wants that's where his concern lies for us. He wants to save us for all of eternity. And sometimes I think that that requires sending storms and circumstances that will ultimately get us to a place where we submit to his will for our lives. Just like the Mariners and the disciples, we often misplace our attention on this world, but God has all of eternity in his perspective. And I think that that requires Two applications for us. They're very similar to each other. The first thing that we have to do is that we have to cultivate in our own lives a eternal perspective for ourselves. And the second one is this. We have to cultivate in our own lives an eternal perspective for other people. This is not all that there is. These are no easy tasks. And like anything else in our spiritual walk, they require the work of the Holy Spirit. Recently, my best friend Chase died after a long battle with brain cancer. Chase wanted to remain here, especially since his wife was pregnant with their, or she is pregnant with her first baby boy to be named after Chase. But while Chase's mortal body was perishing, he knew that his eternal destiny was secure. That's not to say that his final days on earth weren't weren't spent praying for healing. He was really hoping to stay here. But he also had the bigger picture. It was ultimately, God, your plan is the best plan. Chase has died, and it is horribly hard for me. His wife is two months away from having their baby boy. But Here's the deal, he he died, but he's not perishing. He did not perish. In fact, Chase is thriving in ways that you and I cannot possibly comprehend right now. And when I think about having more of this eternal perspective, I often think of the, the martyrs of old who would willingly die because of their convictions, because of their belief in God's promises. In fact, there's an old saying attributed to uh, the theologian Tertullian that states, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But let me remind you that this type of trust in Christ is not just something in the past. We still have men and women who die for their belief in Jesus and we should honor them and we should remember their stories in order to strengthen our own lives. My wife Lolly is Egyptian and raised Coptic Orthodox. In 2015, 21 Coptic Christians were beheaded by terrorists on film. Some of you might remember this atrocity. One of the widows of the men said that she was actually comforted by watching the awful video because she saw her husband calling out to Jesus. And a brother of one of the martyrs said the same thing. He was happy to see the video because in it, his brother said, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. And I have to believe that those men were not calling out to Jesus to have mercy on them in the fact that they wanted their lives to be saved or spared in that moment. They were calling out to Christ to have mercy on them when they entered into eternity and encountered him for the first time. The brother, the brother of the martyr went on to say that when he found out that they were being killed for, uh, they were killed for being Christian, he was reassured because these were God's children and he took them home with him. And even still many of the loved ones that have been left behind have said that since then their faith has grown that they have forgiven ISIS and that they pray regularly for the terrorists. (sighs) Oh, to have faith like those men and the families that they left behind. Is what happened to them hard? Is it tragic? Absolutely. But here's the truth. The pains of this world are not going away. And if we continue to place our trust and hope in these temporal and fleeting pleasures, then we will only exasperate our suffering. But Jesus offers another way. He promises us that we will not perish or be lost so long as we put our confidence in him. We need to be reminded of this often because the worries and the concerns and the troubles of this world become blinding for us. Our suffering can bring us to a state where we are like the men from the stories this morning. We cry out to God that he would give us our best life now, that he would take away all of our pain and suffering in this life and just rain down blessings upon us here on earth. But I wanna encourage you, Through the ups and downs of life, remember, good or bad, your circumstances do not define you. If Jesus has claimed you, then you are more secure than you could ever imagine. In Jonah 1.6, the captain said, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. You know, That captain was playing the odds, right? They were all playing the odds. Whose God can we call upon that will answer us right now? He was reaching for anything that might help. We reach for lots of things that we think might help. Our neighbors are reaching for things that they think might help. But I wanna change his words, that captain's words in light of what Christ has done for us. Arise, call out to the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He will give a thought to you and you will not perish. This is the good news that should define our lives. This is what it means to be saved. This is where we place our confidence and our hope. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful uh, that you promise us that if we call upon your name and we put our trust in you that we will not perish. God, help us to remember that as we go through our lives that that might define how we just navigate the ups and downs of this life. Help us to keep that in mind when we know We have neighbors and friends and family members who are suffering here and now, and also don't have the hope of a future. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work powerfully in our midst, that more and more people will be saved, that they might come to know that they have a future and a hope with you forever in heaven. It's in your name.